You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. An accident at age 16 caused a spinal cord injury that left Brent Poppin paralyzed. This was a beginning to journeys he never dreamed, as he became one of the top disabled athletes in the world. Poppin competed in two consecutive Paralympics, Athens 2004 and Beijing in 2008, in wheelchair rugby and then wheelchair tennis. He earned a bronze medal in wheelchair rugby and has received numerous gold medals and world titles in both sports. Now, Poppin serves as a rehabilitation counselor at Children's Hospital in Fresno, California. He is also an author, substitute teacher, counselor, and motivational speaker. So Brent, I know sports uh, has always been and played an important role in your life. Um, let's talk about how sports were important to you growing up. Yeah, a kid from, a kid from Long Beach where I grew up in Southern California. Uh, it, it's a big sporting uh, city. And it's big on baseball. We have Long Beach State is a big baseball uh, college in Long Beach. And, and their nickname is the Dirtbags. So uh, as, as a kid, you, you, you always wanted to become a dirtbag. You know, I, I grew up watching them <laughs> play. They, they play at their own field called Blair, Blair Field, which is not part of the Long Beach State campus. Um, but it's like a mini pro stadium with like, you know, I've, what I remember as a kid, was always special was like the dugouts were dug out, you know, they were, they were dug in and they had a room in the back, like the professional rooms. And so I can remember as a kid, some of the high school coaches would like lift me over the fence and let me go down into the dugout, let me go in the back room with the players. And so I, I, I just had a big, a big passion for baseball in particular, but, but really all, all sports. Yeah, because I know you played football too, which is and baseball and football were two sports that I played growing up as well. And what was it about sport? I mean, obviously, you know, from from a, a kid perspective, what was it about sports that you know excited you? Yeah, I was just I think I was always first as a little kid, I was just I always wanted to be outdoors. I was never an indoors um, kid. You know, I was always on somebody's roof, somebody's fence, underneath somebody in somebody's neighbor's house. Um, so I just wanted, I was active. I always wanted to be running around. And then I, I can remember at a very young age, I just loved to compete. Um, and at a very young age, I wasn't like a sore, I wasn't a sore loser. I didn't have to win um, until I got older. <laughs> <laughs> but but I can remember, you know, even at like T-ball age and minor B and minor A when I was seven and eight years old, I could just remember I loved the idea that I get to compete against another person. I get to compete against another team. And and see if I could um, win. So for for me, it was just the 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 arena of competition was was important for me. It was basically about pitting yourself against someone else and and seeing how you how you stack up, right? Yeah, and I always loved like I wasn't I always loved practice. Um, that that never bothered me. Um, you know, I was a pitcher, and I I would pitch at home against our our garage door. You know, if I didn't have anyone to throw against, my dad made like a little uh, duct taped, a little like strike zone around the handle of the of the wood door. So I can remember hearing like the thud 
of me throwing, you know, hundreds of balls against this garage door. Um, and I think I took that, that love of, of competition and being willing to, I love the practice. I loved everything about it. So I think that's what helped me excel as I got um, older into sports. And, and so then at 16, you, you uh, had an accident basically doing something that, you know, kids do every day, right? I mean, basically yeah, yeah. just kind of, I don't want to necessarily call it goofing off, but just having fun playing around with another, you know, with, 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 an, with another uh, friend. And so talk about, you know, uh, about that time period in your life. Yeah. So I was, it was 16. I was a junior, junior in high school. And I was going, I had, a, I had a, I was part of a youth group at Millican high school and it was just our youth group, uh, Grace church going up to a place up in the central Valley called Hume Lake. Uh, it's kind of up in like the Fresno foothills, probably like five hours from Long Beach had nothing to do with sports. It was just our youth camp going up there to, uh, be part of a bigger camp with probably 800 or a thousand kids from around the state and just kind of increase. I always say like, what I remember is just, we were going up there to make friends and share and kind of increase our, our friendship circle a little bit. And as an athlete, you know, you're always looking for competition. You're always looking for somebody to compete against. And, um, we got up there and I believe it was the, the first or second night. And it was with a kid I didn't know from a different school in Southern California. And it wasn't like we were trying to hurt each other. There was no animosity, no anger involved, just, you know, goofing off is a good word for it just fake wrestling, you know, the WWE, WWF kind of style stuff. And uh, we thought we were just going to have fun. And we weren't even being, what I remember, even that aggressive. And we just got tangled up and I had my face in his chest and I picked him up and we fell over sideways. And when we fell over, he happened to land on my head in a funky way that caught my, that caught my neck and the weight of his body just ended up bending, bending my spine around like C5, C6, C7. Mm-hmm. So, so initially when that immediately happened, I started off, I was paralyzed basically from the, from the neck down. And so, you know, being an active athlete and, and, um, uh, you know, playing football, playing baseball, as you mentioned, uh, what, what was your own prognosis? What did you think, um, that meant yeah. for you? Yeah. And, you know, at the very beginning, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to think because I, I just assumed I would get better you know, as, as all athletes do. And as I heard more of the terminology and more of the doctors, um, it started to set in like, this might be, you know, my way of life. And at that time I didn't have, you know, hardly any movement and I didn't know anybody in the disabled world. I didn't know anything about sports. I didn't know anything about wheelchairs, Paralympics. I mean, I had no idea. And so I remember just thinking like, initially there was going to be nothing for, for me to do. And then thankfully, um, in my rehab in Long Beach, I got introduced to, I got to see wheelchair sports. I, I didn't have the function to compete at them yet, but at least I could see somebody playing tennis. I could see somebody playing rugby. And there's a, there's a short documentary on my life on YouTube um, called Where I'm Supposed to Be. Mm-hmm. And in that documentary, you hear my sister say, that the light in my eyes didn't come on until I was introduced to wheelchair sports. Mm. So, so once I saw rugby and tennis, those two in particular, um, cause as a quadriplegic, I, I, I was educated pretty quick that I wasn't going to be able to play basketball at, at a high level. 
Um, but when I found out that rugby was designed for quadriplegics mm-hmm. and, and tennis had a quad division, um, I thought, oh, there's a chance for me to compete. Um, didn't know what my level of sporting would be. But again, I think, as we talked about earlier, at that time, it was kind of my seven-year-old body just saying, it didn't matter if I win, I just get a chance to set goals. I get a chance to practice. I get a chance to feel like an athlete again. And I'm glad you mentioned that documentary because I, I remember um, seeing it. And I believe you you at first didn't have a positive impression of wheelchair sports. Yeah, yeah. I, well, <laughs> I just, I think I had a, I didn't know how competitive it could be. Mm-hmm. I, I just assumed that, um, again, just ignorance is bliss, right? So I just assumed that once I got stronger and I assumed I was going to get stronger, that I would just be the best. Like there's these other guys. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends in a wheelchair. I, I Even after I got hurt, there was nobody in rehab that was an athlete. And so I just thought, I'm just going to get a little bit stronger and I'm going to dominate tennis and I'm going to dominate rugby. And that was my mentality. And then uh, I was humbled very, very quickly <laughs> um, when I, you know, because with, with my hands, I can't, grip the racket. So I have to tape the racket to my hand and I couldn't hit the tennis ball over the net. Um, I could barely push my wheelchair up and down the hallway. And so I, I was humbled quickly. And then once I got out of the hospital, you know, it was probably six or seven months after the hospital where I first started playing rugby. And even though I wasn't the lowest classification on rugby, you know, I, I are you familiar with the point values on rugby and whatnot? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So my classification was a class two, but you know, the 0.5s were smoking me. The ones were smoking me up and down the mm-hmm. court. And so, um, I, I remember being, being humbled, but I also remember thinking, okay, I have a goal to set, you know, in three months, I need to be faster than that guy. Um, and so I think that's what really, uh, changed my focus and, and, change my thoughts about being disabled. Cause I thought if I could set goals in sports and attain those goals, that should translate into real life. I could set goals in real life. So the sports were kind of the, the driving factor on um, a positive attitude. Yeah, no. And I appreciate that, that honesty, because I think that, I mean, we, we at move United use the power of sport to confront ignorance and sometimes it's, yeah. it's our own ignorance. It's just, yeah. we, we don't know what we don't know. Exactly. And so I've talked to a number of athletes that have had that, particularly athletes that have come into an injury or a disability, uh, have that exact same impression of adaptive sport, pair sport, wheelchair sport, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call it. So I think, I think as, as more and more folks like you also share that story uh, and share your own original opinions and thoughts and perceptions and that they've changed, obviously that's, that's important to, to elevate, you know, what exactly adaptive athletes are doing every day, all day. <laughs> yeah. And this, and this summer it hit home with me. I, I, um, I always do the tennis clinic for the angel city games mm-hmm. with, with D uh, who is my, she happened to be my, she's able-bodied coach. Uh, she was at Biola. She was my first wheelchair tennis coach. So mm-hmm. it's always fun to, it's always fun to come full circle with her. You know, now I've been in chair for 32 years. So, um, but it just so happened at this angel city games, there was a couple athletes who, and, and one of them was a single amputee girl who had been in a chair for 10 years. And this was her first time 
being introduced to wheelchair tennis. Mm. And, and for me, that just like, it's hard for me to register that you went through this disability for this many years. And this is your first time, you know, being able to participate in wheelchair sports when that was such a driving factor for me. And she was so excited to be a part of it and um, being introduced to it. So it's always good for me when I get a chance to, to give back that, that positivity. Yeah. And to be, and just big exposure, just exposing more individuals with, with disabilities to the fact that there are all of these sports out there, whether it's tennis or, I mean, you name it, there's tons of sports now. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we say that there are 70 different adaptive sports. So you think of the sport, it's been adapted at this point, just about for anybody and everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then being, you know, we're, uh, like where I'm at today, I'm, I'm at Children's Hospital in, in Fresno, where I'm on staff and as their counselor in rehab. So I immediately introduce sports and, you know, we have, you know, access to all the videos and all the different, and personally, I could bring in my own rugby chair, my own tennis chair. And so we definitely use it as a tool to get these kids um, moving, get them active and, and, you know, which just benefits their, their recovery. And so you discovered, uh, obviously, some of these wheelchair sports through your rehabilitation. I understand also that your parents went out and started searching for some sports and, and resources for, for you and the family. Yeah, I think, I think my mom and dad knew who their son was fairly well. And uh, <laughs> once, once I started to get a little bit of finger movement, once I started just to get a little bit of arm movement, and I could, you know, my first chair, I had quad pegs. I had hill guards on them. I mean, I, you know, I had the chair loaded 32 years ago. <laughs> and uh, I think once they saw me pushing a chair and they always saw me like, I always tried to push faster. I always tried to push longer. I always tried to push harder. They realized right away, we have to go out. Because back, to, and then my mom and dad are not, they weren't, well, there wasn't Google back then for my mom and dad, but they're, you know, they're still not Google people whatsoever. <laughs> but they, but they knew they had to go out and find information about wheelchair sports so that they could introduce that to me, probably knowing that that was going to be the one thing that would ignite my passion again. So they went on their own and took pictures and brought home brochures and brought home uh, magazines and different things and were showing me as I was getting introduced also to those in our, through our recreational part of my rehabilitation. Uh, so, Brent, I have to ask, why wheelchair rugby? I mean, I, I mean, obviously, there's a, uh, there was and is a number of wheelchair sports. What was it about rugby for you? Yeah, I think rugby for me was was my football. You know, I, I wasn't going to play my. You know, I was going to play college baseball um, at Long Beach State. You know, I, I was going to live that dream as a Long Beach Long Beach kid. And um, going from my ninth grade year for me, ninth grade was still middle school. It wasn't in high school yet. So going from my ninth grade year to my 10th grade year, I wasn't going to play football at Millican High School. I was just going to play baseball. They had a really good baseball program. So I was gone all summer hiking and up and we had a, a cabin up in the mountains with, with no electricity. And um, we just spent the whole three months hiking up and down the mountain and fishing. And so I, I, that's what I did. And then I remember I was driving past as school at, towards the end of summer. Uh, school hadn't started yet. But we were driving past Millican High School, and I saw all the guys playing football. You know, they just had finished Hell Week. And they had all their pads on, and they were out there hitting. And I told my mom, um, hey, I think I want to go step on the football field. And so I had a lot of aggression as a kid. I mean, I was always, even as a, as a baseball player, if I could knock you down, I was going to knock you down as a baseball player. 
you know, um, if, you know, every once in a while a batter took one in the back just cause I was having a bad day. So I, I had, I had that football mentality, that temperament, um, even in, even in baseball. And so my mom said, I'll, I'll drop you off and you can go talk to the coaches. And so I just walked onto the field and I, I said, uh, I, I was a big kid and I was, a, you know, they knew I was a big athlete and they, they knew I played baseball. And I said, I'm coming here, you know, as a sophomore and I want to play football. And they said, well, where were you all summer? And I said, well, I was up in the mountains hiking and fishing. And they said, are you in good shape? And I said, yeah, I think I'm in pretty good shape. And they said, well, you need to get a physical, this, that, and the other. So I ran home, got the physical the same day, got back on all the paperwork, got back there before the end of practice and got in my pads the first day. And I just love the, I love the team aspect of football, mm-hmm. but I, I love the, I, I love the contact. And so when I saw the rugby guys crashing into each other and hearing them banging, I think it just brought back that football mentality in me. Um, and then thankfully the first people I was introduced to, uh, with rugby was through Rancho, um, Los Amigos and all those guys, Greg Thompson and, uh, Ray and, and Luce and all these old timers, um, were, were great mentors and, and help, I think, help flame that, that fire for me. I was going to ask you where you played. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and so when did you when and how did you realize that hmm, not only do I like this sport, I'm, I, I'm good at it. I can compete at the, at the highest level. And, and then, so, uh, and when did you discover obviously the whole Paralympic pipeline and, and that you could play that sport at, at the, at the international level? Yeah, it was, and I, it was years. I mean, I got hurt when in 1990 and my first national championship was that I won was 1996. So it was six years before I was playing at at least a, a elite club level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was probably three or four years into playing when um, I realized, man, I'm, I'm starting to get better. Uh, I, I was fortunate to get back enough function in my body to allow me to reach my potential in rugby. Um, you know, we always say in wheelchair sports that, uh, function beats ability. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I could be a better tennis player than a paraplegic, but nine times out of 10, if the pair is a decent player, just because he has more function, he's going to beat me. You know, mm-hmm. that's why you see, you know, all the Paralympians are for tennis, you know, have the most function. The basket, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way sport sport is for, for adaptive sports, which is why rugby is great because it gives those, those guys or basketball as well. Anything that has a point value, it gives those lower functional guys, uh, an, an important part of the team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I think that's what attracted me to rugby, but I saw myself in three or four years. I was as a class two, I was starting to compete with the twos. Um, I started like at the end of each tournament, you know, there'd be an all tournament team. That would be mentioned. And all of a sudden I would start being one of those guys who won all tournament. And in Southern California, there was a lot of, um, a lot of teams, like in most States, there's one or two rugby teams Mm -hmm. in Southern California. We, at that time we had our own little league. So we probably had seven or eight rugby teams in Southern California. And, uh, the guys in San Diego thought, you know what? Our talent is spread out so much down here. That's why we're not winning national championships like, um, Tampa, because everybody's in one, the whole state is in one team. 
And so those guys got together, um, I think in like 94 or 95 and kind of pulled the best talent from all those teams into one team. Mm. And, and I wasn't on that team yet, but I saw what they were doing. I got to compete against those guys. And then in 1996, they asked me to be part of that elite team. And, and that was the first year that we ended up winning the national championship. And then we won in 96, 97, 98, and we started rolling off um, a lot of national championships. So it was that, that period started at 96, where I realized that I, I could be an elite athlete in, in the sport, sport of rugby. But I, 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 I still didn't know anything about the Paralympics. And I, I don't even remember knowing that term or what the Paralympics were for, for quite a while. Mm. And so you did make a Paralympic team and, and, uh, what was it like, you know, uh, when, once you obviously had discovered that, that it was an option and then you made the team and, and then, uh, going over and, and winning a medal. Yeah. So I, I, start, I was playing tennis and rugby now by, by 97, 98, 99, I was playing both at a pretty high level. And I was, um, I was representing our country, like in world team cups and, mm-hmm. and all-star teams and different things like that. Um, but I also made a promise to my mom that I would graduate college mm. and, and no one in our family had, had gone to college yet. And she sat me down and, um, was worried. You know, she said, there's a lot of doors that are going to be closed to you just because you happen to be in a chair. That's just reality. You know, my, my dad was a pipe fitter. He, he climbed pipes for, for the, for Arco refinery. I obviously wasn't going to, wasn't going to be climbing pipes as a quadriplegic. and so she just asked me to please get my college education so that I would, that I would have more doors open for me in the future. So I made that promise to her, and I'm a mama's boy. So I wasn't going <laughs> to, I wasn't going to let her down. And, and that and, was good on, good on mom to, uh, yeah. to encourage that. Right. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. And so in my, the first time I remember hearing about the Paralympics or having a chance to be invited was in 2000 when they were in Sydney. And by that time I had won, um, four or five national championships by then, but I was still uh, finishing up my college education. So I didn't even go to the tryouts in, in Sydney. Um, and then I was, I was in the middle of my education. And then when the tryout started for 2004 for Athens, I was at the, I was at the end of my education for my teacher credential. And so I didn't go to the initial tryouts, just hoping there would be a second round of tryouts, but I wasn't guaranteed that. And if you see in murder ball, that was the first time that our um, Olympic team lost the international competition. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 2002. So the coach was nervous. I think I, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think he was nervous that, wow, this is the first time we've lost. We, we might not have the Paralympic team that I think we have. So he invited eight guys. He, he personally asked eight guys to come out to a second tryout. Um, but he prefaced it with, I'm not promising you that any of you eight guys are going to make the team. I just really need to shake this team up. I need to make them worried. I need to make these guys uncomfortable to try to get them to compete at a high level. Hmm. Well, as soon as I got that invite, my, my mindset was initially like, well, I'm taking somebody's spot. You know what I mean? So that for me, it wasn't even a, a question. I, I, I knew that there was 12 guys that thought they had a safe spot. And one of those 12 guys um, was, was going to go home upset after that, after that camp. And so I dedicated myself for two years or um, about a year, six, eight months, something like that training until we got to that first camp. And the eight of us 
went in there. Obviously, it was a very uncomfortable feeling because you had this team that had been together for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And now you have now you have eight random. I mean, they they knew who we all were. They were all we were all eight of us were elite players. And yeah, you're going to interact with each other on a club level at some point in time, right? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I can remember going in the gym and they were all over on one side of the gym, and all eight of us, our chairs and our bags were on the other side. And you could just kind of feel the feel the tension, but that kind of stuff fuels me. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, after I think it was a it might have been a five or seven day camp. I was the only one out of the eight guys that made the team. Hmm. And so, yeah. And so initially there was some animosity, I think with the, with the 11 other guys, cause I took one of their brother's spots. Um, but I think they quickly realized I, I got invited to the first international tournament um, when I was part of the team to go back to, uh, to go back to New Zealand and compete. And we, we won the gold medal back there. And I think that's when they realized, okay, this guy could be an asset to the team. So I was welcomed with open arms and traveled afterwards with the guys and, um, made, made lifelong friends. And we've, so we talked a little bit about rugby, obviously, Brent, but what about tennis? What, what I have to ask what, what it was about that sport that also got you excited, uh, to start playing it. Yeah. And tennis, tennis was the first sport I played only because, uh, my dad was a CIF championship tennis player in long beach. Hmm. My mom was a very good tennis player. So, they they related to tennis very well, um, and in wheelchair tennis, the only difference is I get two bounces. So the the so it was something that I could do with the family. My family wasn't going to play rugby with me. Mm-hmm. You know they were they right. they weren't they they, they weren't going to go buy a four thousand dollar chair just so they could bang around on the court with me. But for tennis, we could go out to the court together, and my dad could have a tennis racket in his hand and tennis balls, and he could feel like he's doing something with his son. Um, so initially it just started in the backyard. My dad would just throw hundreds of balls to me, just trying to get me to hit the ball against the far enough to hit it against the um, garage door. So it, it would kind of simulate a net. And it took a long time for me to even be able to do that. But my mom and dad loved tennis so much that it was easier for them to keep me playing. And kind of like rugby, I was, I was terrible at first. And I, I, you know, relatively quickly got better. I started beating people and, in the A division. Then I got moved up after one year to the open division. And then it seemed like once I beat somebody above me, I never lost to them again. So for me, it was just kind of chopping down those guys, getting to the elite three or four guys. And it took a few years till I got there. Um, and I, I, when I, when I made the rugby team in 2002, I had to give up tennis because mm-hmm. I was just focused completely on rugby went through the rugby program, loved every minute of it, the Paralympic program and, and the commitment um, was upset that we didn't win a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won a bronze medal. And I knew right away that um, I wanted to challenge myself again. I felt like if I stayed in the rugby program, I, I would, I would kind of float through, not float through, but I, I had a very good chance of making the 2018 for rugby. And I, I wanted to challenge myself. And there wasn't, there's not very many able-bodied athletes or Paralympic athletes who competed in two different disciplines. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so in 2005, at the beginning of the year, I called the rugby program and I said, Hey coach, I'm, I'm going to leave the rugby program and, and enter the tennis Paralympic program and try to make the tennis for the Paralympics in 2008. But I, I hadn't played for, you know, two and a half, three years. So I was starting way behind the eight ball behind that 
all the other players that were gunning for the Paralympics in 2008. Um, but it was a goal of mine. And so I just dedicated myself um, to that goal and ended up, it came down to the last tournament in 2007, which was the Japan Open in May, which is the last tournament for all the Paralympic um, cycles. And for wheelchair tennis, you know, you compete, you know, like whatever, Wednesday through Sunday. And then that following Tuesday is when the rankings come out. So we knew, for me, I knew that at the Japan Open, it would finish on a Sunday in May, the third Sunday in May. That following Tuesday, the rankings would come out. And for tennis, if you're ranked one, two, or three, you automatically qualify for the Paralympics, for the quad division. Mm. Where, where rugby is a subjective call, right. there's coaches and there's committees. So I always knew where I stood like I was, you know, a hundredth, and then I was 50th, then I was 16th. <laughs> then I was seventh, then I was fifth, then I was fourth. So I knew you kind of know where you stand. And, um, you know, we always do the math and it came down to the Japan open and it was me and another guy, um, from the USA, whichever one of us won the semifinal of that match was going to be the one that qualified for the Paralympics. And so for me, it was a full four year circle coming down mm -hmm. to the last, the last possible tournament playing against the USA guy of either he makes it or I don't make it. And kind of the same mentality I had for rugby. I, I knew waking up that morning, like, sorry, Brian, you're, you're not going to the Paralympics today. Mm. You're a friend and we've competed in world team cups together, but today, exactly. to, to, today I'm crushing your dream. <laughs> well, and, and often that's what happens, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're friends until you get on the court. <laughs> I, absolutely. So I, I was thankful that I, I, I made, I set that goal and made it, um, qualify for the Paralympics. I didn't win a medal in, in, uh, Beijing. I, I lost to the guy who won the gold medal. Um, I had a match point against him and, um, played a, played a bad point. We ended up going to a long tiebreaker. He beat me in the tiebreaker and then he went on to win, to win the gold medal. So it was disappointing on that aspect, but just the whole idea of tennis and competing in two sports and pushing my chair on the great wall of China. Um, you know, those, those were experiences that, that were worth all the dedication for, for the Paralympics. And, and I want to pivot our conversation a little bit because I know that you've put out a couple books. Um, uh, one, you know, is obviously one's called tragedy on the mountain. And, uh, yes. and, and so first of all, why did you want to use that, uh, means or vehicle to get your story out because you know writing a book is not an not an easy task by any means to not mm. only reflect on all of the, your life and your experiences and everything sure. but, but even obviously putting it down literally on paper why did you why did you want to do that yeah so after um after beijing in 2008 my my goal was to do three paralympics so i after after tennis I realized how much I missed rugby. I missed knocking people over. I missed all the banging. I missed the team aspect of rugby. Um, and, and to be honest, rugby is a more difficult sport. Even though I didn't medal, I was surprised about how easy the Paralympic program was for tennis. And so um, where rugby might have been too much, and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm honest about this in the book, like I, I think, we, I think the, when I was in the program, they overtrained us in, in Paralympics. And I think, Tennis undertrained us a, a little bit, hmm. um, but I think at that time everyone's still learning about the Paralympics and and how do we get 
the most out of these disabled athletes. I, I, I don't think nobody had the perfect formula and, and I could be wrong. I mean, maybe we need to be pushed more in rugby and maybe we need to be pushed less intense. I, I, I don't know that. It's just, it was my feeling after being in the rugby program and being in our chairs for, you know, eight hours a day and grinding and barely being able to transfer out of my, my rugby chair into my everyday chair because we were so tired that when I got in the tennis program, I'm like, oh, today's done. Like we just, we spent a couple hours on the court. We sweat a little bit. We hit, you know, we hit a lot of balls, but I didn't feel exhausted. Um, yeah. And that's, and, so, and that's, that's performance science, right? I mean, there's obviously a whole degrees and experts and, and all of that stuff in terms of figuring out how to, how to get the best performance out of, you know, anybody or any athletes. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 I don't think they perfected it yet. I still think they're figuring out, um, you know, especially with the disabled athletes, everybody's injury is so different. How, how do we maximize Brent, but not overtrain or undertrain his teammate? Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely a complicated thing for those guys to figure out. So I, I appreciate them putting all their, their efforts into us. And then as an, as, as athletes, we, we just get to critique it. <laughs> and people always ask me, do you want to go back and coach? And I, I say, no, cause I don't want to coach somebody like me. <laughs> so so um, I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings. I, as just an athlete, I'm just trying to be honest. Um, so, I, I, so I called the rugby coach and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to get back in the rugby program for London for my third Paralympics. And uh, they were happy with that news and um, imme immediately made the first round of teams, competed internationally for our, for our team in 2009, winning gold medals in World Team Cups. And, and then 2010, I won my, my seventh, uh, national championship for San Diego. So only me and one other guy in the history of the sport have seven national championships. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> which, which makes me want to go back one more year just so I could get my eighth. Right. I mean, that's, that's how, yeah, that's you don't want to be tied with anybody. <laughs> that's how I feel. Um, so I, I, I was on my path to, to London and I felt confident that I, I was going to make the London, London team. And then in 2000, um, 10, I got a blood infection that went septic mm. and, and I knew I was feeling terrible in like, even during the national championships in April for, for rugby, um, I didn't feel good. Um, but I just pushed my body through it. We ended up winning the national championship and then all that summer, you know, a lot of people in my family were telling me to go to the hospital. You look terrible. You sound terrible. I knew I had worked up a little pressure sore on my ischial bone just from overtraining. Um, and I was aware of it and I was trying to take care of it, but I, I, I wanted to make the last cut for rugby before I dealt with it. So I was just kind of, I was kind of, you know, I had that Olympic athlete, like my, my body's going to hold up. I'm, I'm going to be okay. As I'm flying around the world, you know, sweating on planes, waking up with headaches and dripping sweat in bed. Um, and then on July 18th, I was at home in Paso Robles. And it, it hit me really bad. And I don't remember any of this, but my, my wife called my sister, who's um, an ECMO nurse at USC, and said, hey, uh, your brother can't talk and he won't go to the hospital. Uh, you, you need to come up here and talk to your brother or get him to go to the hospital because I can't do it. So my sister just drove up from Long Beach about a four-hour trip. And I don't remember seeing her or anything, but she walked in the backyard. And if she was on the phone with you, she would tell you that I was the sickest person she's ever seen. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that's with people who live and die on her, on her mm-hmm. watch. Mm-hmm. So she just scooped me up, put me in the car, took me to the nearest emergency room. And they came out and said, your, your brother had three days to live about if, if you wouldn't have brought him here today. Oh my. So I immediately had to spend 35 days in two different ICUs, um, had four, three IVs in three antibiotic IVs in me for four months and had to spend seven months, 24 seven in a hospital bed. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was in the first month I couldn't feed myself. Um, you know, I, I was, I was too sick. I was too weak. Uh, they weren't sure if I was going to make it. So there were some scary, some scary times in that, in that first month, but I got through it. Um, and then randomly, um, I got an email from uh, a lady named Dr. Richardson, who was my homeschool teacher when I was 16. Hmm. So I, I hadn't talked to her in 20, like four years. And, um, she randomly calls me when I'm again at, at my worst, as I was when I was 16. And she says, Hey, Brent, this is in an email. This is Dr. Richardson. And you probably remember me as Lucio Richardson. I was a high school teacher back then. I was your homeschool teacher. You've been on my heart for the last month. And, and I've been, I've been thinking about you, but I couldn't remember your last name. So I've been praying about it. And I woke up a week ago and I, I woke up to popping. So I typed you in Google and oh my gosh, all the stuff you've been able to accomplish. She said, I think we need to write your autobiography together. I have a couple of books published. I, I know the book world. And I think your story could change people's lives. Mm. And I wrote her back immediately and said, well, this um, isn't the time. You know, I don't, I, I don't know if it is or not, but I'm, I'm really sick. I'm in bed. I got IVs in me. I'm in bed 24-7. And I said, but I, I have written a kid's story about a little boy in a wheelchair named, it wasn't a book. It was just a long document, a long story. I said, I don't know if it's a book or not. I said, but it's a long story. I said, maybe you want to look at that first before we think about the autobiography. And she goes, well, just send it to me and me and the team will take a look at it. So I sent it to her and, and within a day, she emailed me back and said, oh my gosh, we're, we have tears in our eyes. We, mm. we, we, want to, we, we want to turn Harley into a children's book and then we'll start working on your autobiography. And so um, doing both of those books while I was laying in bed was really the best medicine for me because because mentally it took me out of being in the hospital bed for right. 24 hours and if i was writing about harley i was thinking about his journey if i was writing about my life story i was thinking about something else for 12 or 14 hours a day and i'd wake up at two in the morning and the computer was right there i would start writing till i fell asleep i would wake up at two in the afternoon and i would start writing so i was just able to use that as as a tool to mentally get through those those difficult Times because I, I knew I was going to get cut from the Paralympic team if I couldn't go to the training camps. You know mm-hmm. there was uh, there was a hundred guys who wanted my spot just like I wanted their spot. Mm-hmm. So I did I I did get the phone call after about three months. The coach saying, "Hey, we we know you're fighting for your life, and but you also know I I can't hold this spot for you, so we have to cut you from the team." And I knew that was coming. Um, it was still hard hard to hear. Um, so that's how the books initially got started in 2010. And they didn't get finished and published till 2012. So it was a couple year process of writing, rewrites, um, getting the book where I wanted and getting the book where they wanted before I, before I, I was happy putting it out to the market. 
Yeah, and I and I wanted to talk about the children's book separately. So I'm glad you or in addition. So I'm glad you mentioned that too. And that one's called Playground Lessons, right? Yeah, Playground Lessons, Friendship and Forgiveness. Yeah, and and you know even you know even in in that time space. I mean, obviously we're about you know ten plus years later, but there there just wasn't a lot of books about people with disabilities in the children's literature space. So yeah. Uh, so what was it like to be able to contribute? Um, uh, to show not only representation, but to educate maybe, you know, other kids about, you know, disabilities. Yeah. And that, that was a big thing for me. I, the, really the book is, it's about a little, my wife teaches second grade. So, <laughs> a, a, so, so a, everything in the book is really my life. My, the teacher in the book is named Mrs. Poppin, who my wife is Mrs. Poppin. The kid's room number is 209. My wife's room number is 209. Um, <laughs> Harley's chair, the, the wheelchair that Harley's sitting in was the chair that I was sitting in at that time when I drew the book. So it's really, it's about a second grade boy's first day at a new school where he's the only one with a disability. But really, it's, it's my life as an adult, this, the way I feel going into a college class, the way I feel going into a boardroom, the way I feel going for a new job, just kind of seen through the eyes of a, of a second grader and how it might be his classmates that deal with them. As an adult, it's just the general public who is is a lot of time ignorant about disabilities and just and like you said earlier, they just don't know what they don't know. And so right. I wanted to use, I wanted to use this book as a tool to educate elementary kids. So when they dealt with a kid with a disability, that they would have some background knowledge on on that this kid was just like them. They just would have to learn to do things differently to include them. Yeah, and and you know we have a few minutes left, and I, I want to make sure that I not only plug the books again, Tragedy on the Mountain and Playground Lessons, because we're going to have you out at the Abilities Expo in LA yeah. um, signing soon. So I'm looking forward to having you out, and hopefully folks will come out and, and meet you and get, grab copies of the book and absolutely uh, and see your bronze medal and all that good stuff. <laughs> um, how do people connect with you or? Uh, find out about you because I know you also do pub some public speaking. So, you know, obviously you have a website or social media platform. Yeah. I, I usually get to, uh, you know, minus COVID, I usually get to about 20,000 kids a year speaking. Mm -hmm. So um, do a lot of presentations. I'll be down next week in Los Alamitos um, speaking three days down there on campuses. Uh, it's easy to get a hold of me on Facebook, just my name, Brent Poppin, um, Instagram. Uh, books by Brent, or type in my name. It's it's pretty easy to find me. My website is hugsbybrent.com. So H-U-G-S-B-Y and B-R-E-N-T dot um, com. YouTube, just my name. You can find my YouTube channel, all the different things. So I'm I'm, I'm not a hard person to get a hold of, and I do a pretty good job of trying to get back to to people when when they reach out for me. <laughs> 